Uh, I'd like to just say a little uh, bit about uh, practice and other kinds of contemplative tools that we can use in daily life to support and enhance and uh, maintain that, that practice. Because it's, it's very simple. Uh, it doesn't take up a lot of time, if you think about it. If you were to you could do two 20 minutes a day, uh, we'd probably spend that amount of time, you know, watching TV after the news is finished, you know, before turning it off. Or so it isn't that it's um, a lot of time, but uh, the, uh, the the practice is a discipline, and it takes time to learn a good habit. It's much easier to learn a bad habit. Well, the best way of getting rid of bad habits is to learn a good one that pushes the bad ones out of the picture. So I'd like to spend a little time talking about that. And we could, we could begin maybe by just a quick look at, uh, you, don't, you don't have to look at this, but we've given you the, the uh, text of the Dharmapada, which is a major Buddhist text with a good, a good introduction. You can look at, look at that at your leisure. But um, one of the uh, good descriptions he gives in this is of the of Buddha, Buddhism's framework of understanding, framework of reference, not so much a dogmatic belief system, but uh, he speaks... What? I just let them know the page you're on here. Yeah. Okay, if you want to look at it, it's page 14. So, well, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it's just to give you an idea, there's a theoretical framework provided, first of all, by the Four Noble Truths, which the Buddha discovered uh, in his Night of Enlightenment, and which forms really the, the core of his teaching, in the same way if we were to say, what is the core of Jesus' teaching? We might say it's his identification of the of the of the the, the, the um, commandment to love God, your neighbour, and yourself. This triple uh, dimension of love. Uh, so certainly, the four noble truths are central to Buddhist uh, thinking, and there are many schools of Buddhism. There's a Protestant Buddhism, uh, and there's a Catholic Buddhism. The uh, Theravada Buddhism of Thailand, for example, the, the um, Mahayana Buddhism of, of Tibet, and so on. So, um, Dalai Lama is more of a Catholic Buddhist, a Protestant Buddhist. Um, but all these schools of Buddhism share this fundamental um, framework. And the four noble truths center around the fact of suffering. The word for suffering in Buddhism is dukkha, which can also be translated not just as suffering or pain, but also as just when things go wrong, just the unsatisfactoriness of life. If you fix one lamp in your house and then the next day another one stops working. You know, things don't work all the time as well as they should, sometimes very badly. Um, and uh, the Buddha, of course, was 
began his journey by seeing uh, the first signs of, of life, of the unsatisfactoriness of life, suffering, old age, and death, which his parents had tried to protect him from. They locked him up in this castle of earthly delights where he was not allowed to see any of these things. But he sneaked out one, one day and, and saw them. And then that was his journey, then the beginning of his journey to understand it and to transcend them. So the uh, second truth points out that the cause of suffering is craving or desire, what we've been calling attachment. And uh, this, this is a major element, of course, in, in Christian mystical contemplative wisdom as well. Um, and in all religion, we have to make a distinction between the moral and the mystical. They're not opposed to each other, but the moral often takes over as if it were the, the, the goal and purpose, uh, whereas in the mystical vision or the contemplative wisdom, uh, the moral is seen as a framework or as a, as a, as a, uh, you know, a, a foundation for uh, developing the higher levels of consciousness, the, the contemplative. And we see that, we saw that in, in the Tao. It says you can't, you can't live... You couldn't live a life where you're screwing the poor and cheating and lying and you know, you know, abusing people, being a human trafficker, and really sit down and meditate twice a day. Eventually, you'd have to choose between the two. So the second truth is that the cause of suffering is desire, which brings us round and round this endless cycle of death and rebirth. And the third truth is that um, uh, it can be transcended, that we can transcend desire, uh, and in the fourth truth, that the way to uh, gain release is what he calls the Noble Eightfold Path. And this is right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, making your living in the right way, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration or meditation. So, what does the word right remind you of? TSLM. There you are. So, the right order of words. So, you've got it right. So, in a way, meditation is, is part of the process, of course, but it is also a way of getting it right getting your life right. Um, we looked at the Beatitudes, and I think the Beatitudes would make a very uh, powerful dialogue partner with these eight noble truths. They're not exactly the same, but they point to the same experience uh, of rightness and the... Uh, and the sense of a, an integrated, uh, integrated vision, an integrated system of life. So we're just going to focus on meditation, right, right concentration or right meditation. Um, we talked a little about mindfulness, and mindfulness, of course, is a, a major uh, player in the 
uh, in the game today, has been for quite a few years now, and it has brought many people to the first awareness of the fact that there is a way, there are practices that you can do to get things working better in your life, in society. Through these practices, you can make things righter. So what is the relationship between meditation and mindfulness? Well, if we take the historical context, the full context, even Buddhism or Christianity, we can see that meditation is, um, is, is central. Uh, a contemplative practice is central to this goal uh, of enlightenment, this goal of freedom from desire, this goal of living uh, rightly. And mindfulness, I think, we, is, is part of that picture. He has a, mentions that. Um, and he, he has treatises on you know, mindful walking, mindful eating, mindful sleeping, mindful and so on. But um, I think uh, in the present way that mindfulness is, is, has been presented, this connection has been uh, neglected, and many Buddhist teachers point that out. So, without getting too much into that, we could just say that meditation makes us more mindful naturally. It will just happen. And that is an example, I think, of what we mean by the simplicity of meditation. If you have this practice of meditation growing in your life, it takes time, but when it becomes part of your life, you don't have to work so hard at being mindful. It would be difficult not to be mindful. And uh, you will be, become aware that you are more present. That's what mindfulness means, being in the present moment, being present to the, to the people you're with, to your patients, to your friends, to your children, to yourself. And to the great mystery that we belong to. So I think this, this presentness this is a natural fruit of meditation. And it doesn't require, if you have the meditation, you don't have to be so self-conscious about being, trying to be mindful. So we're starting from the point of view of having meditation in the way we've been practicing it as part of our life. And I think we begin soon to sense that it is a healing process, both inside and on the outside dimensions of our life. We begin to see that what does healing mean? Uh, Barry will talk about this this afternoon. But I think healing basically is a, a beneficial sense and experience of participating in something bigger than ourselves in the whole. Suffering, illness, loss, anxiety, stress, all isolate us, fragment us like poor Martha, make us feel that we're excluded from the whole, we've been neglected, we've been abandoned, you know. We're outside of the, the dance uh, that J. was talking about. And, but something that heals us 
uh, allows us to recover, literally to, to, to recover our sense of um, belonging, connection. So if meditation is present in our life in this way, we're going to experience it as a healing, uh, a source of healing. And we're going to see the other, uh, all the aspects of our life in a more relational way. We're going to see that our times of meditation are really important and valuable because they prepare us for our day, for our daily life. And our daily life is important because it prepares us for those times of meditation. And getting the sense that these are really related and important to each other is the big learning curve. Because normally we say, yeah, meditation would be great, you know, and I know it's really good, I've experienced it, but, uh, you know, I just can't get around to it or I haven't got time for it. There are too many other important things to do. But when one senses that they are, are actually um, interdependent and really help each other, uh, that changes. So how do we prepare for meditation? How does life prepare us for meditation? Well, it, it makes us more mindful, more present, more aware, and more conscious. And so we will catch ourselves more quickly when we start to get distracted, when anger, irritation, discouragement, depression, uh, uh, negative feelings, jealousy, self-importance, egoism, when all of these things naturally start to arise in us through circumstances of life, We'll, we'll see them more quickly. And this isn't a big self-conscious uh, therapy session, but you will just notice that you have become, you're becoming angry, angry. And as soon as you notice it, you're in a better position to control it. Because you know where it would lead if you didn't control it. And the same, say, with depression or with, I mean, clinical depression so much, but really discouragement or really feeling miserable then uh, you would notice it and catch it before it got too big. The early monks used to call this guarding the heart, like an immigration check. You know, so why, why, are you, why do you want why you, this, this angry feeling? Why, you know, why do you want to come into this country? You know, what's your real motive? John Main once was asked, uh, what is the best way of preparing for meditation? And uh, normally he would say uh, a time of silence, some stretching, some yoga, he, he always encouraged people to do yoga, some stretching, um, listening to some music, or if you're tired, you to wash your face and hands and refresh yourself. On this particular occasion, uh, he rather surprised us or me by saying small acts of kindness. Mm -hmm. A small acts of kindness during the day. And it really does rather change the way you look at your life when you realize that you get up in the morning and you've got you know, 
12 hours or so to um, or 16 hours to um, uh, to get to, to do things and well, are you going to get everything done you know is it going to be a good day are you going to be successful uh, things going to go bad you're going to have a heart attack so all of these things but then you can also say well but what a wonderful field of opportunity to do small acts of kindness when opportunity arises. I don't have to sort of go out, go out looking for old ladies to walk across the street, but, uh, but every day, every moment, really, every encounter presents opportunities. And it could be a smile, it could be just an extra word, it could be a touch on the shoulder, you know, and um, a small act of kindness like this is also a great act of kindness to yourself. And it would interrupt any progression of negative feelings that were building up in you. I'm isolated, I'm failing, I'm not getting everything done that I wanted to do. Uh, people are not liking me, people are going to be critical of me behind my back. So all of these sort of little voices can be quite effectively uh, silenced and swept away uh, as you get into the habit, and it's more spontaneous than artificial, of course, of these small acts of kindness. Um, so the day prepares us for meditation, and meditation prepares us for the day. So there's this nice right relationship, or this consort dancing together as Eliot describes a poem. So maybe to think, maybe we come to feel that our life itself is a kind of poem with many nuances, many levels of meaning, uh, but a, be a, a beautiful work. Um, and there are many things, other uh, Practices, you could say, you could call contemplative tools that um, I think meditation also awakens you or reawakens you to appreciate. Sometimes as, as, we, as we get busier and more ambitious and take on maybe too many things, we lose uh, contact with some very life-giving, beautiful, creative, simple uh, activities that used to nourish us uh, in ways that we didn't even appreciate at the time. So music. We're having a music festival starting tomorrow night. Uh, music and meditation. Uh, so music, making it, listening to it. Uh, sport. Um, not watching sport. Um, TV, but doing it. I'm not going to go much further into that because I don't do any. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, exercise, walking, yoga, um, art, spending half an hour in an art gallery is, you know, it transforms the day for you. You know, when you're really feeling tense and miserable and overwhelmed, you know, and uh, you know, to slip out and go into an art gallery or a, a 
the National Gallery or a small gallery and just, just taste uh, the world of art for a while it makes a huge difference. Or just taking a walk in the park or taking a walk on the mountain like this. So these are, these are also contemplative practices. Again, we don't have to become artificial about them, and we should do the ones that we have a natural bent for, a natural attraction to. So in that sense, I think meditation awakens in us the, the simple, small, economically, time, economically uh, practice of daily meditation. Gradually, uh, in, it doesn't solve all our problems, but it does definitely give us a much better set of means in order to face those problems and resolve them. And it does that because the day, daily life itself, which is basically what we have, uh, you can be worried. You know, you can be planning your career for the next five years or ten years. You could be. <coughs> worrying about your children's education, and so on and so on. But basically what we have is daily life. And if we don't have daily life, we'll end up like Martha, not even doing the job we're paid for very well. So the daily life itself is, um, is, is, is crucial for um, a good life. And then I think even the small things of life, you say, what happened today? Well, this, 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 and this happened. Some of these things I may remember in 10 years' time, but probably most of them I won't. But every one of those moments was what Eliot calls the timeless moment. It's part of your history. And the history is a collection of timeless moments, he tells us. So, there are some other sort of specific practices that we might find helpful. Um, these have become more, some of these are, are, have become more better known, I think, through Buddhism's influence on Western, Western people, Western lifestyle, um, which has largely happened because the church was unable to remember that it has all these practices uh, within its own tradition and its own you know, life, but uh, it's turned these practices very often just into either obligations or, or just sort of rather empty rituals. I mean, that's not for everyone, of course, but um, for, for many people, uh, the Activities of the church, the sacred actions of the Christian tradition uh, have pretty well been emptied of um, their significance. Anyway, uh, you have something like uh, in the Buddhist tradition you have loving kindness. I heard about it the other day, which is so say, say you have a really difficult relationship with someone or at work or at home and it's got under your skin, you feel angry, you feel vengeful, you feel sad, you feel betrayed, whatever it may be. Um, and you can't, just you can't just solve that problem. It's, it's a personal problem, it's a relational problem. 
it's dragged up all sorts of things in yourself and the other person may be just not willing to talk about it or unable. So this little practice is quite useful. You sit, you call to mind this person and you uh, take on, in an imaginative way, you take on all of the, of the unhappiness, the darkness, the ignorance, uh, even the ma- malevolence of this, of this person who's causing you so much trouble. You sort of say, okay, I'll take it off you. I'll take it off you. And in return, you give to that person whatever is peaceful, good, happy in yourself. It's an imaginative process, obviously, but I think it, it, it has a healing uh, effect. It's rather similar to uh, the Christian, Catholic uh, idea of the sacrament of reconciliation, confession, but that's, we've lost the meaning of that, unfortunately. So, uh, so that's, that's a little practice, and anyone can perform it, you don't have to be a Buddhist to perform that. Um, another one is uh, visualization. Uh, taking a short time to simply focus upon some object of beauty or um, spiritual significance. Uh, it could just be you know, consciously, deliberately looking at a view or at a painting or at a sacred uh, representation, an icon or a tanker or something like that. So just taking a little time visually to focus um, and not to look at it so much in, in icons as a whole spirituality of icons in the Eastern, Eastern Christianity uh, where you I don't have any icons here, do you? You don't look at them, but you, they are windows through which you look. So it's a certain type of looking. We've been doing a certain kind of reading this week. But there's also a certain kind of looking like that. Uh, and for the Christian, I think uh, the, the Mass, you know, the Eucharist, is um, very, you know, very powerful uh, means of um, reconnecting, of healing, and of really just getting back into touch with, with yourself and with the teacher within. Um, but that doesn't, again, that doesn't mean a lot to most people today, but for some it does, and it's worth, worth remembering that. Uh, then uh, there's yoga, and uh, which we've been doing, of course, with Wojtek. Uh, walks, such as you've been doing. So these are all specific little practices that you could, again, choose on the basis of do you like doing them, and not as an obligation, but because you, you like them. You listen to music because you have to listen to it. Listen to it because you, you like it. And Lexio, what we've been doing this week has been a certain kind of re- way of reading, very different from the way we learned at school or the way we use it at work, which is to scan and extract information and, and knowledge that we can use in other ways through a hit and run. Whereas 
the kind of reading we've been doing, uh, and it's been wonderful for me to see how you read it, and uh, it made this much easier for me, because you read it so well, and you um, can also feel, I'm sure, how you are read by it. Certain texts, deep texts, uh, it's not just you manipulating or squeezing truth out of the text, but it is also the text reading you, teaching you, and uh, helping you. So to take a little time every day, again, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, on the bus, or the train, uh, to, keep, to keep a book going, and I mean, a, I say serious book, but, uh, you know, a text that, you know, really is uh, tested and tried and deep. So, uh, and one that uh, you, you can reread. I think if you read one of these texts and you, you think, okay, I've read, I've read the Kata Upanishad, I don't need to read that again. You know, you quite haven't really read it yet. So it's all about rereading. To read seriously is to re-read. So I think meditation opens up an experience of, of many other things, like music, playing with your children, that Marina is telling you about, told me. Uh, no, it's another one, another Marina. But he said that, uh, he, you know, when he got back home in the evening and kids were there and he was tired and he had other sort of work to do, you know, he would be irritated by the children. And he said now, he said he, he's, he just spends, I don't know, a little time playing with them. And he said it's just been so wonderful. He has permission to do it, he has the space to do it, interior space to play. Play with children, play whatever. Uh, art, or to, or to read to read a novel, you know, not many, many people make time to, to have a novel on the go, uh, poetry, very busy people, I think Mary McAleese says that she, she didn't have time to read uh, novels because they were too long, but she read poetry because they were shorter, so, she, and so I think uh, to, to enrich our lives with these things, doesn't take a lot of time, but you use the time, you use your time well, you use your time better. So, summarizing it then, I think we could say that the practice of meditation in a daily way makes you more aware, more conscious, more present, and develops a more contemplative way of living and working. And what is contemplation? Contemplation was defined once as the simple enjoyment of the truth. Key words, simple, enjoyment, and the truth, what is, what really is, not what you imagine it to be. So, um, and at the heart of that, of course, is the, is the work of attention. Becoming more attentive. Meditation is the purest form of attention. 
And by developing it, strengthening it in the daily practice, it, it, it passes over into everything that you do, revealing that every moment is a timeless moment. Um, the word contemplation comes from the Latin contemplum, and it uh, is templum gives us the word temple. It wasn't originally a building, it was a space. It was a, a, a space marked out where you would do your uh, auguries, your divinations and uh, your, you know, your magic or whatever. So you would, it was in that space. And to be contemplative is to be in that space, to be with that space. <coughs> So I think meditation opens up that space within us and uh, interiorly and it allows us to remain with that space in daily life.